Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music. Interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. It's getting nice and heavy. Now, welcome our hosts, John the Vernomatic Verno and Metal Forever Mark. Well, you know us. We're always doing our share to keep it heavy. That's what we do here. Metal Mayhem ROC. I'm your host, John the Vernomatic Verno, and tonight we have an observance show. We're tipping our hat to the late Cliff Burton, original bass player of Metallica. This past Sunday was his 34th anniversary of the passing of Cliff in a tragic bus accident back in 1986. And we have an exclusive interview for you tonight. Andrew Robleski. He was the second engineer on the recording of the Metallica Kill 'Em All album in 1983. The band recorded it up here in Rochester, New York. Andrew's here for the first time sharing anecdotes, stories about recording the tracks, details about the photography of the album, and just overall general cool stories about hanging out with the band and getting to know them at a very, very early age. So Andrew will be joining us a little later. But before then, we're going to visit with Metal Mayhem correspondent, The Cranker from San Diego, California. Now, The Cranker, he was part of the Metallic Overdrive radio show from the mid-80s that befriended Metallica. The Warhead and The Cranker, they're two of the jocks that did this Metallic Overdrive radio show. They became friends with Metallica, drove them around, showed them the sights of Rochester, you know, hung out with them after hours. So the Cranker is going to give his insight as to his experience with the band and some follow-up as years passed. So we're tipping our hat to the late Cliff Burton. It's a treat to get to know Andrew Robleski, the engineer that did the album. Metal Forever Mark, my partner in Metal Crime, he's in the production studio putting together a finishing touches on an exclusive interview with Sean Peck of Death Dealer. So he'll be back with us in the next couple weeks. But until then, you have tonight's show, the Cliff Burton Observance Show. I'm the Vernomatic. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. And I think I see the phone ringing. We got a light in the studio. Here it is, the Cranker from San Diego. We'll talk to you soon, folks. Oh, boy, this is going to be fun. I haven't made a crank call in years. Now, now, live from San Diego, California, Metal Mayhem ROC correspondent, The Cranker. I know time for cranks like you. The Cranker. Get ready for a review of a classic album or hear classic metal stories from back in the day. Time for The Cranker. Time for The Cranker. Time for The Cranker. Time for The Cranker. For The Cranker. For The Cranker. Cranker, how you been, buddy? What's going on? Hanging loose, man, just drinking a beer. Nice. Playing huh? some Metallica. <laughs> All right. Well, um, this week we're uh, doing a little flashback episode. Sunday was the 34th observance of the passing of Cliff Burton. So we rounded up a few of the guys that had something to do with meeting Cliff, meeting the band back in the day when they spent uh, a month or so in Rochester doing Kill 'Em All. And 
who better to contact than the cranker? I was, I was there. <laughs> yeah. Well, what do you know? Uh, and what's your experience with the band and feel free to start from the beginning and tell us what you feel you can tell us. Okay. I could go way back to the very beginning to the current tape trading days. And, uh, that's basically where it all started. Like, um, I had acquired the, um, the no life to leather demo from uh, one of the light men. His name was Patrick Scott. He was a light man for Metallica and he had an ad in Kerrang and I wrote to him and he said, I got this killer band. Let me send you out the demo. And it was the, uh, no life to leather demo actually handwritten the one that, uh, that Lars did. And so I had the demo and with that demo, there was a little card. It was, it was called Metallica and it was a power metal. It was a, a calling card, like a business card. Yeah. And it had a, a phone number on it. So I remember I was sitting around listening to the demo one day and I said, what the hell? Let me give this phone number a call just for the hell of it. So I called the number, two or three rings go by guy answers. Hello. And I say, Hey, this is the cranker man at the house of metal. I said, uh, I started asking questions about the, uh, the demo. He goes, well, I'm Ron McGovney. I'm, I'm the I'm the bass player, so it was actually Ron McGovney's phone number on that calling card. So we started talking. He says, "Let me. T I'll tell you what. I'll send you a couple T-shirts. You know, since you're so into the band." He sent me some flyers that they did the whiskey and the Troubadour back then, and then he sent me two um, Metallica Young Metal Attack T-shirts. It, it was just really cool of him to do that. That that was basically the first person I ever really met Metallica was Ron McGovney over the telephone. Okay, so, and uh, what, what year was this? This was 82? 1982, I got the demo. I would say probably in the fall, maybe. Uh, no, I actually got it in the summertime. Uh, I actually had it in 82. And, and I was cranking the, the demo, and I was turning it on everybody in Rochester. And people, we had They had a little underground call following in Rochester right from the very beginning, from that No Life to Leather demo. Mm -hmm. So me and Bob were... Uh, Somehow we found out that, that they might be recording at Music America, right, Barrett Alley? Yep. So me and Bob, we go down to the studio, we knock on the door, they let us in, and we say, hey, is, um, is there a band here coming here called Metallica? And they go, well, yeah, you guys know that group? I, me and Bob go, hell yeah. <laughs> you know, we've had the demo for like a, almost a year now. Yeah. And he goes, you actually know this group? And we go, yeah. We were talking to uh, Chris and... Uh, and then the owner of the studio, I forget his name. What was his name again? Paul Curcio. Paul. Yeah. So he, he said, I'll tell you what, they're in town right now. And they're staying on Boardman Street, you know, uh, right down the street. See, they, they said, why don't you guys go over there, knock on the door, introduce yourselves and hang out, make them feel comfortable. And we said, okay, sounds cool to us. So we go down there and it was a beautiful old Victorian style home. And it had a. The door had a big glass window, and uh, we looked through the window, and oh my God, it was all these Metallica road cases in there with the Metallica logo stenciled all over. And we go, oh my God, they're freaking here. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Me and Bob started flip, flipping out. So I, I, he goes, go ahead, knock on the door. I knock on the door. Lo and behold, who comes to answer? Cliff Burton. This big, tall guy had a, a joint hanging out of his mouth. He was stoned out of his eye. He was so cool. He starts laughing. He opens up the door. And he goes, what's up, dude? We're going Metallica. And he knew we already knew about the band. You know what I mean? Yeah. And all of a sudden, Lars comes running the door and, and Kirk, and they couldn't believe that someone actually knew about them. And so that's actually was our very first meeting. And, um, and it got to, from that point on, we would go over there every night and hang out with Metallica. So what happens is Kirk 
Kirk and Cliff had got their tracks done early. So they, they were only in town for a couple of weeks and then they split, went back to San Francisco. So the final mixing had to be done on the album. And James and Lars wanted to stick around for that. You know what I mean? They were like, we're not leaving. We're going to be here for the final mix. So they were really in a bind. And they're like, oh, my God, what are we going to Because they had no money. They were broke. And they had no place to stay. They didn't know what to do. I says, look, you guys, you can stay with me. I have a home on Melville Street. I got plenty of room. You're more than welcome. And they freaked out. They went, oh, my God, dude, for real. Hell, yeah, Metallica. You guys are staying with me. And it was a, it was an every night party. Basically, Bob would come and pick them up like about four or five o'clock in the afternoon, take them to the studio. I'd hang hang back at the house, and people come over, bring over beers, and just wait for them to come home. And, and we actually, what was really cool about that is they actually would come home with mixes of like say a Phantom Lord or Jump in the Fire, Seeking This Right. We were hearing like really raw mixes. Yeah, Lars, they put it in the cassette deck, man. Let's see what it sounds like. And all these people be hanging around, and here we are listening to freaking Metallica, right? You know, mixing right after they got out of the studio, hearing raw tapes. And I still have them all, actually. Lars let me double them all, which is pretty cool. That's cool. Cranker, tell me the story about how uh, Lars either borrowed, with air quotes, uh, a shirt from your wardrobe for the back picture of Kill 'em All, or blatantly uh, no, stole it. That's, no, no, no. That's. How that happened was they were getting ready to, I was there when I went out, they were uh, getting ready to do a photo shoot and Lars didn't have a shirt. And I think Bob, that was actually Bob's shirt, that striped one on, on the Kill em All. That's actually was Warhead's t-shirt. That was one shirt he used to wear around town quite a bit. He happened to have it on and and, and Bob just offered to him, said, here, just take this one. He just was in a bind and needed a shirt. Oh, Isn't okay. that funny how that happens? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's basically all it was. It, I'm telling you, these guys were, were, you know, working with pennies back then. You understand what I'm saying? I remember Lars used to call his father a lot, and they'd have long conversations on the phone, and he was always trying to get his dad to wire money. He'd be talking to Johnny Z on the phone. We need money. We're broke. And they said, okay, we'll do what we can do. And they always, you know, would get money. But it was just, just enough to live on back then. You know what I'm saying? This is all during the recording of Kill 'em All. It was, it was hard for them. So the band wraps up in June of 83 and they end up going on the kill them all for one tour with Raven. A couple questions. One, did you go see him at the riverboat? And two, did you ever catch up or have any communication with the band following in the next couple of years? Oh t- yes. A few times. Um, I'll tell you the story when they actually wrapped it up at uh, Barrett alley music America. Me and Bob drove them to the airport in Buffalo. So we we took them to the airport in my car, dropped them off, and they were flying back down to New York just to uh, get with Johnny Z. Because you know, the album was done. It was just a matter of another month or so, and it was going to be released. We kept in touch. Bob said one day, hey, man, Lars called. He wants us to come down to Queens, the Jamaica Queens, where they're, where they're practicing with Merciful Fate. Anthrax was in the same room. Black Lace, you ever heard of the band Black Lace? They they were in the. I haven't. They were just another another metal band from New York. They were uh, practicing in the same. It was a huge empty warehouse. It was just you know where bands would practice. It was in the hood, in the middle of Jamaica Queens, in a very very rough neighborhood. My car almost got stolen. It was crazy. But yeah, we just went down there and hung out and got to hang out with Metallica and jammed. And I got to jam with them and. 
uh, Lars and James got in a fight, you know, like they always did. And, and I would have to be on the drums and James pushed Lars and he knocked over a cymbal and it came flying and cut me right above my eye. <laughs> it was a crazy night, man. Yeah. Crazy. That was like uh summer of 83, a couple, maybe a month or so after they left Rochester. Yeah. It was like August. Yeah. Somewhere around there. And then they came, then they came to the riverboat that you, you, were you there for that gig? No, no, I'm, okay. I'm a little younger. Oh, okay. So we, um, we hooked up with them again at the riverboat. And I remember they came to town at the war memorial and me and Bob went to meet them at the, on the tour bus, but they were really good. They were big time. You know what I'm saying? There was no more just hanging out. Like we were buddies, you know, now you're dealing with, you know, 200 people hanging out the tour bus and they all want to talk to James and Mars. You know what I'm saying? It was a big, totally different scene. Well, I'm going to don't sell yourself short because for that master of puppets show at the time, that's when I got into broadcasting, we had a chance to interview mm-hmm. them and hang out with them that day. And during cool. the, during the interview, I mentioned, and they asked uh, about Bob Bob Thomas. Yeah. They did. And, I'm sure they did. <laughs> and, you know, and Kirk especially said, that's one guy I'd really like to see. And so they did stop what they were doing and, uh, you know, looked up and they did mention Bob. No disrespect to yourself, but, you know. Oh, no, that's cool. Uh, I had hooked up with Metallica the last time, uh, two times. I got a couple more stories if you want to hear them. But basically, yeah. I, I was in the Navy, and I got stationed in uh, NAS Alameda, which is right there in you know, Oakland, San Francisco, right there in the Bay. So I used to go to a lot of gigs at the Stone, <clears throat> see all the you know the, the thrash and speed metal bands and metal bands in San Francisco, the Bay Area. So one night I went to the Stone with a real good friend of mine, Aaron. We went to see, it was Megadeth uh, and Death Angel, and I think it was Overkill. But anyways, back in those days, all the bands supported each other, so they would all hang out. And that's when, um, let me see, Kurt, uh, James was there, Lars was there, and um, uh, Jason Newstead was there. And that that, that was um, one time when I saw them. I actually went to see SMOD and Exodus with Kirk, if you could believe that, and his girlfriend. <laughs> I used to see these guys uh, hanging around San Francisco. They all used to hang at the Omni, the Stone. They would be, you know, just be hanging out at the Record Vault and, and you know, and just kind of look up, hey, yeah, let's go see MOD, let's go see SOD. And I'm like, all right, cool. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah, there was a few times. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Uh, at the sports arena here in San Diego in like 1993, was it? So, well, they filmed uh, the, the, the video. Uh, I forget which one it is. You know the um, one I'm talking about? Yeah, Live Binge and Purge. Live Binge and Purge. That's it. I, I was there for, uh, I, I went there early. I actually lived about a mile from the sports arena at that time. So I go down there and uh, they were already there. I got there early about, say, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. They were already in town. The tour buses were already in the back. And I got to hang out with James and Lars. And, you know, we just talked about old times. And they it was a pretty intense night because they were recording that night. They were doing that video. So that was about the last time that I've seen uh, Lars or James, you know what I mean? Had a chance to talk to them. They always remember me though. That's the, the craziest thing. You know what I'm saying? They, they, it just, 
goes right back to those that time, 1983, at Alley Music America, and they remember staying at the house. They always thanked me for everything I did for them. I used to feed them. They were, I used, I used to, <clears throat> my grandma used to give me food to take over the house because she knew that I had some some big rock band was staying at my house. You know what I mean? Was, she was so funny. What, gra- 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 yeah, Grandma Ferraro sending over uh, some yockeys and meatballs? Yeah, grandma's there. Oh, they ate it up. Boy. They ate every, <laughs> yeah. everything. There was nothing left behind. Trust me. They couldn't wait. I used to go to my grandma's every Thursday. They just couldn't wait for Thursday to roll around. It's so funny like, talking to you what I remember now. Funny. Yeah. Cranker, that's awesome, man. It's just, um, you know, we've been doing this little flashback the last four or five months talking with Ron Stein about Lakeshore and yourself. We've talked a few times. And, you know, Rochester used to be known as uh, Soccer Town, USA. I think we should start a movement and rename it Metal Town USA. A lot of great bands recorded at, at uh, Music America. We had everybody coming up there at one point. I, I met T.T. Quick. I'm downtown one time uh, on Chestnut Street, I think, waiting a delight, and there goes T.T. Quick walking across the street. You know what I'm saying? It was like crazy back then. The Rods recorded. Anthrax have been up here for some stuff. Everybody. We had everybody. All the killer bands. You know, you just had to be in the kind of like the circle to know when these bands were in town. You know, you know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying, yeah. man. That's that's yeah. awesome. And, you know, you were there, and that's why we uh, we lean on you, Cranker, because, you know, all due respect, you've been, like I said, collecting <laughs> these tapes for years. It's a passion, and it bleeds through when we talk, when you post stuff. Cool. And, you know, that's what life's all about. So, I hear you. I guess. I got tons of stories, man. Ton, tons of arcade stories, Orange Monkey. It goes on and on and on. I, you know, I spent 28 years of my life in Rochester. You know what I mean? It was a lot of fun. Upstate New York it was a great place to grow up. All right, Cranker. Well, you enjoy the rest of the uh, hours of your day off, and um, we'll be looking you up real soon. That's cool. I I'm, I'm hope, uh, hope I was able to help you out a little bit, automatic, you know what I mean, with some old school stories. I'm, I'm always willing to do it for you. It's no problem, bro. Of course. That's why we call on you, and that's why you're the cranker. We'll talk soon, buddy. I'm here. I'll talk to you later, bro. All right. See ya. Okay. All right. Bye. This edition of Metal Mayhem ROC is brought to you by Mr. V's Street Style Vending and Special Events Catering. Visit our lunch cart in the College Town District at Strong Memorial Hospital or hit up the late night weekend location at the corner of Monroe Avenue and South Goodman. Look us up at MRVSVending.com for catering, pricing, and availability. That's Mr. V's Street Style Vending and Special Events Catering. Now, back to Metal Mayhem ROC. The wisdom of the cranker. Wow. That was some... uh. There's some interesting stuff. Imagine being him and his buddies back in 83 and hanging out with Metallica like that. Good stuff. Good stuff. So, like I mentioned at the top of the show, Andrew Robleski, he was the second engineer of the Kill 'em All sessions. At the time, he was, uh, I think, like 20, 21, young guy, about the same age as the band. He found himself in a unique situation, and he's here tonight to share all the details. I want to thank everyone for joining us again tonight. Again, Thursday nights, 8 p.m., all major platforms. If you want to follow us on any socials, it's real simple. Just search Metal Mayhem ROC. We'll talk to you soon, folks. WLFE TV Radio. Andrew, welcome to Metal Mayhem ROC. Hey, John. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Of course. So it looks like uh, you got a tale to tell. 
uh, why don't we get right to it? Uh, well, um, I'm born in Rochester, and uh, I went uh, to the Eastman School of Music, their uh, audio engineering program. And after I graduated, my first job was at a studio called Barrett Alley Studios, which is right behind the Eastman School of Music. Uh, and it was in the basement of the old Rochester Club, which was a big uh, Art Deco, uh, huge, huge nightclub in Rochester back in the in the days, you know, the 30s and the 40s mm-hmm. before World War Two hit. And um, then um, Barrett Alley was taken over by uh, a gentleman by the name of Paul Curcio. Uh, and he changed the name to Music America. And uh, Paul uh, hailed from the West Coast and uh, was a producer for, he produced most of the Doobie Brother albums. Didn't um, Curcio originally live in Rochester, went to the West Coast, and came back? Yep, he did. Uh, I think something, you know, something fell flat out there, and he came back here. He said, you know, this is where I'm from. You know, my, I was where I was born, came back here, and got back involved in the music industry. Okay, so you uh, hooked up with Curcio. How did you get in touch with Curcio and Music America? Um, yeah, well, the studio was in the basement of the old Rochester Club, and that was right behind uh, the Eastman School of Music. And one day, uh, you know, during lunch break, I walked out back, and I walked in, and I said, you know, I go to the Eastman, I'm, I'm going to be an audio engineer, and I want a job. And they said, great, when can you start? And I said, six months. And they said, why six months? I said, well, because I'm going to grab a backpack and I'm going to backpack around Europe. And uh, then when I come home, I'll be ready to work. Hmm. And that's what we did. <laughs> so, Andrew, if, uh, if we were uh, putting this on a timeline, this would be when? 1981, 1982? 82. 82, yeah. yeah. Did you go to Europe and did you uh, have your gap six months or what happened? Yeah, I went to Europe, backpacked for six months, came back home and then walked back into the studio and said, I'm back and let's go. You know, sounds like this is when the fun begins. So let me get my popcorn. Let's hear this. Yeah, well, this is where the fun begins. Yeah, because the first project that I got to work on was with this um, band from the West Coast. They had never recorded an album before. They're a bunch of little kids. And their their name of their band was Metallica. Why did Metallica come to Rochester? Why did they use Music America? Was it a deal they struck with Curcio? Yeah, John, I think Johnny Z and Paul knew each other. And Paul, you know, he he as the you know um, as the owner, he was he was out there, you know, making the phone calls and and kind of uh, uh, you know r- drumming up some business. And, and said to Johnny, you know, you can come up here and, you know, we're, we're just getting our, our feet underneath us as a studio. Uh, I'll make it worth your while. I'll cut you a deal, you know, and then um, uh, Johnny, you know, and Metallica came from the West Coast. Um, you know, they got rid of Dave Mustaine. They had uh, uh, Kurt Hammett come out to meet him in Jersey, in New York. Mm-hmm. And then they played a few gigs. They practiced. I know they practiced with uh, Anthrax in some warehouse where they slept as well. And then they uh, tooled up here at the beginning of May. I think it was it was like the first or second week of May of '83. And they landed in Rochester, and they um, we put them up in a house that one of the guys in the studio owned. 
as a rental property, and we put them up in this single-family home off of Monroe Avenue. And uh, that's where they spent the next four to four to six weeks. Was that the Boardman address? Yep. Yep, it was on Boardman Street. Yep. So the band comes up here second week of May, 1983. You put them up, and tell me about the production and how the recording process went. Well, the head engineer was a guy by the name of Chris Bubach. And Chris was classically trained um, musically, okay? Paul Curcio, the guy who owned the studio and got the producing credits on the album, he, you know, had done a lot of work with the Doobie Brothers, so he his his music was a little bit different. And I was the only one in the studio that loved metal, like I always loved metal, right? From as old as I could remember myself, right? These guys came in and I was like, this is going to be great. And, and everybody hated it, to be honest with you. Paul wasn't a big fan. Chris Bubach wasn't a big fan. And I'm not slamming these guys. It's just, it is what it is, right? They just didn't get it. And I said, these guys are going to be huge. And they, they're like, this is this you can't even understand anything it's too fast and i go no that's the thing <laughs> <laughs> that's the thing <laughs> this was a new process to them they had no idea what's going on this is a brand new studio it was like okay what are we going to do unless just they just set up and they started playing was there a uh, a, a production sheet did they uh, because the the music they're recording was basically the no life to leather demo they were just re- yep. reproducing that. I'm just trying to understand if these if these gentlemen didn't have any idea, like in the metal, who was producing it? Was Curcio credited as the producer, or what, was he really producing the music, or was he just on paper the producer? On paper, he was the producer. He didn't really have anything to do with the production. I mean, Chris. Chris was the head engineer and, and he didn't like things and he was trying to um, record uh, the guys in, in what he thought was the way it should be in the, in the realm of things. Um, you know, Lars and James with their very strong personalities and headbutting, <laughs> um, they, they basically ended up getting the album produced and, and, and put down. When it came to mixing the final uh, sessions, they, the guys, the, the boys were not even allowed in those sessions. That's widely uh, been publicized. They didn't have any say in the final, um, the final uh, mixing of things. At this point, was Zula coming up and checking out progress? I know he was making phone calls, but did he come up to this, come up to Rochester and check in at all? He did. And Johnny was, he's a fantastic guy. Johnny came up with his wife and his two little kids. They were they were tiny little guys. And I remember the first time they walked into the studio, here comes this family. I kid you not. Okay. Head to toe leather and chains. Okay. <laughs> Even the kids? Even the kids. <laughs> and I said, all right, this is the most badass thing I've ever seen in my life because, and they were so nice, like just such nice people. Johnny and his wife were so wonderful. And, uh, and they came up a couple of times that I remember they, maybe they came up more, but I know at least a couple of times. Now you mentioned uh, Curcio, but you also mentioned the other engineer, Chris Bubach. That's the gentleman that went to uh, Fredonia 
and worked, yes. worked with uh, Carl Kennedy and the Rods on several projects. I was just going to talk about Carl Kennedy and David Feinstein and the Rods. Yep. Carl Kennedy was on Metal Mayhem ROC earlier in the summer. So he gave a perspective of this whole scenario from his point of view. That's why it all intertwines together. Yeah, because Carl and those guys are all from uh, Cortland, I think. Yeah, yeah. Cortland and uh, Central New York um, metal scene. What we did um, actually in the spring, we started a, a celebration of the Rochester metal scene. And we did a three-part mm-hmm. series on the Lakeshore Record Exchange, Ron and Jackie Stein. Now, I have a picture. I wish I could find Ron because I have a picture of Ron. Because I took Metallica to, up to Lakeshore Record Exchange one afternoon. And I have a picture of Ron and, uh, and Metallica in the store. And I'm, I'm, I'm the only person in the world that has this picture. I can tell you that. Well, we do have several photos from the uh, Metallica at the Lakeshore on our website. Maybe some... Yeah, they made it. They, they ended up going back there again. Yep. Okay, so we have the band in the studio. They start the production of, start recording, kill them all. How does the recording actually progress? There's been rumors that there were spirits in the drum room. Lars has been stated as saying cymbals started spinning for no reason at all. Is any, is any of this true? So a little backstory here. You asked about like the production, you know, how did they, per- everything was out of a notebook that James had, you know, James had this notebook with all his lyrics and ideas for things. And that's was basically his Bible of, of their song catalog. And that's how they just went by how things were in this, this notebook. And I remember having conversations with those guys and I told them that, you know, I had some experience in music and, you know, electronic music and stuff and what have you. And I remember asking him, I said, you know, what is the greatest hard rock album of all time? They said, Led Zeppelin one. And I said, you guys know the back story to Led Zeppelin one. And I said, no. And I said, well, it was recorded in an English mansion in, in the English countryside. You know, one of these things that you walk in and they have two giant, like, you know, sweeping spiral staircases made out of marble that mm-hmm. meet up at the top. And I said, they, they actually recorded everything right there with their amps and that. And they were like, that's cool. That's raw. And I said, it's the rawest album of all time, you know, hard rock. That's where the conversations started with like, let's do something different. So the studio's in the basement of this place called the Rochester club. And the, uh, on the next story up was the actual club itself. And they, they had a, a, the bathrooms, especially the men's room was this absolutely gorgeous giant room with all tile. And what we ended up doing, we ended up taking out all of the uh, stalls in in the bathroom and opened it up. And we put Lars's drum set in the men's room and ran all the mics and hundreds of feet of cable (laughs) down to the studio. And what was the end game of putting it in the, in the bathroom for acoustics? Um, Oh, acoustics. Absolutely. Because the, you know, Lars plays hard. He's, he's never stopped. And, uh, you know, the little drum, um, corner or room that we had in the studio was not, it just didn't sound like how he played. We put his drums in this bathroom and when he hit the snare, I mean, you, you heard it for a mile. And so we got him all set up in there 
And um, I can remember setting up a lot of those mics and things going back down into the studio and we'd start and he'd stop, you know, cause all the guys were down in the studio and everybody had the headphones on and that, and he would stop and he goes, Hey, what's going on up here? And, and, and everybody's like, what, what, what? And he's like, how come Andy, that's what they called me. Mm-hmm. He said, how come Andy keeps walking past the door? And they said, he's sitting right here. And then that's, you know, then symbols started spinning. And finally he said, I, he was freaked out. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't, and I, I didn't blame him. It was freaky. So then I had to go up there and sit with him because it, it was freaky. There was all sorts of stuff happening up there. If somebody, and it's been very well documented, they call it the haunted mansion. It's not really a mansion, but I will tell you that if I don't really kind of sort of believe in that stuff, but it was spooky as hell. <laughs> Is that where the name of the song Phantom Lord came from? <laughs> You know, hey, you never know, but uh, no, it was before they came to Rochester. Yeah. So, uh, so Lars is down in the bathroom, um, where the rest of the guys were in a traditional studio setup. Did they play all three play together? Yep, they all play. They all three played together, and then you know when needed, obviously, you know we would go back and and over and do things. You know, we would put Kurt in a um, isolation booth. And I remember sitting in, in him and with him, he was practicing solos because, you know, Curcio, uh, well, I'm sorry, Johnny Z wanted Kurt to play the solos like Dave Mustaine used to play them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you, you know, Kurt had just, he had been taking lessons from Joe Satriani, you know, before he came and, and, and before he, you know, when he was in well Exodus, right? Yeah. Exodus. And he was taking lessons from Joe Satriani. So then he, you know, he comes in and he doesn't want to play Mustaine's uh, solos. So, you know, Johnny Z is like, well, just start it off like Mustaine started it off and then do your own thing. So I remember sitting in the guitar uh, isolation booth with Kurt and I have tapes of this somewhere, John. I wish I could find them. I, and just me and Kurt talking and, and Kurt working on solos for uh, some of the songs on Kill em All. Do you remember, do you remember what solos or... What songs? No, no. Who was giving them the direction? How much input did you have? Seeing that you have a had a history of being a heavy metal fan, did they turn to you thinking that, no disrespect to you, but you had a little more pull and you were like the metal guy? Yeah, to a certain degree, yeah. I mean, you know, Chris didn't like metal. He, he was in pain this entire time recording this album and i kept saying no 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 chris that's good you know um james you know chris when they started recording stuff you know chris was suppressing james's guitar he was like throwing it towards the back more you know and and james was like i can't no you know i mean these guys james and alars have eagles you know that right yeah 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 so and and but that's what made them great. And James was like, "No, I need more guitar." And so you know, it was like, "Chris, you have to. It's got to be more. The music has to be in your face. This is, you know, more. You have to put stuff more up front." And so we would record a song, and then we'd put it on a cassette tape, and then the guys and I, the five of us, would pile into my 1976 Chevy Impala that I had parked in the alley. And we would play their songs in my Impala because Lars said, if it sounds good in the car, 
then it's good for us. Yeah. Because that's where everybody is going to be listening to the music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've heard that before, and that still holds true to today. I wish I still had the car. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But you still have the car? No, I wish I did. Oh, yeah, I wish you did. It actually got totaled being parked outside the studio. You know, uh, somebody slammed into it and took off, and then that was the last anybody ever saw that car. So when you're recording the album, this is an engineering question, did you start with Hit the Lights and do Four Horsemen and go into sequence of the album, or how did how did the recording go? I, you know, I'm not a thousand percent certain. I I I doubt we went sequential. Yeah, as it shows up. No, I think that the 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 guys got to pick. That was the final uh, options that they had was to pick the order of the songs. When they did Metal Militia, were you there when they had the guests come in to do the mon- the march at the end of the uh, end of the song? What was that all about? It was just people in the studio. Just we um, the drum area was on a, just a slightly raised, like one step up in a corner, and uh, we you know we just took the drums out and just people that were there that's when they did the the stomping of the feet. It was like, it was like, uh, like on, um, uh, seek and destroy, you know, when they go into the, um, running anyway, hiding. Yeah. You'll be dying a thousand deaths. Right. That's a chorus. And that's one of the songs like I sang on because I happened to be there and they needed an extra voice to bulk up the back. And so it was a really low budget, uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a low budget album i think i don't i don't think it, i think that um i think they did it for between 10 and 15 grand i was gonna say i've read on several different occasions 15 grand yeah somewhere between 10 and 15 sounds right to me it was very low budget who did the keyboard at the beginning of phantom lord uh there was a a guy that was a friend of Chris Bubach's. I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he was like, he played like piano bars around Rochester. You know, you might, you know, the stereotypical guy that plays piano in a, in a bar and he has like a, a goblet on top of the piano for tips. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was a guy like that. He's, he's who did that. So, well, nothing more than just a little hum intro. Whose idea was to do that, to have a little intro on keyboards? Every decision when it came to the songs and stuff, it was all Metallica. It was either Lars or James. Uh, Kurt, uh, his personality, he was a little quieter, a little bit more uh, calmer. Um, you know, Cliff had a, a personality that could fill a room. But when it came to decisions on what to do, it was either Lars or James. Mm-hmm. Well, at that point, Kurt was in the band for, you know, five weeks, six weeks at the most. So, you know, he's just getting mm-hmm. his footing. And when it came with, I've read throughout the years, you know, I've been a fan since the beginning too, that Cliff was one of those, he didn't, he didn't raise his voice much, but when he did, you listened. So possibly he picked his spots when to have input 
And like you said, it's Lars and James's baby. It has always been that way. So I'm sure yep. behind closed doors, Cliff had his input as to, you know, what he was, what he wanted to do. And that leads me to my next question. Whose idea was it to have a bass solo on a, on a debut album? <sighs> well, as Flea said, uh, at the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony, it was one of the ballsiest moves of all time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was it was Cliff's idea, and uh, Chris was like, you know, he's like, no. And uh, I remember, you know, uh, a couple of days before that, uh, when Cliff was like just screwing around in the studio, and he had this this great distortion, obviously, as you can hear on the on the bass solo. Yeah, and. I thought this was a great idea. And Chris was like, this is the stupidest, you know, effing thing of all time. And I said, no, this is going to be awesome, you know? And so, you know, Chris was like, okay, fine. You know, so they put, uh, we put um, Cliff into the studio by himself and all the guys are in the, in the, you know, the booth. Right. And Chris says to me, he goes, all right, fine. You introduce it. And then that's when we opened it. And I said, bass solo, take one. And it was one take and that was it. Now, the funny thing was, is that, um, you know, about halfway through there, a cliff started losing. I don't, I, I want to word this properly because it's very important. He started like not faltering, but he was losing where he was going. And so then James shoved Lars into the studio and said, start playing. And that's when the drums came in. And you can tell because Lars came in a little meek too, which is unlike Lars. This was all improv. Wow. Yeah. So, so the anesthesia pulling teeth, that was a one take deal. That was it. Yep. And now in the production world, you, you, you label the takes. So as it turned out, when you introed it, bass solo take one, it turned out to be the only take there was. That's it. One and only. Was that at any point considered a segue into whiplash? Because it just, maybe just throughout the years, you can, you can't listen to whiplash without hearing, you know, the end of anesthesia pulling teeth. Yeah. You know, that's been people have, hypothesize about that over the years too i don't know i mean if anybody was immersed into the music it was cliff because kurt was learning it james and lars were driving it but cliff was inside of it like cliff he lived and breathed the music and he's you know and it's so easy you know how you know, when somebody passes away and everybody's like, oh, you know, he was a really great guy and the guy probably wasn't. Uh, Cliff Burton was a phenomenal guy. He was so fun. He, every time he saw me, he'd always go, rage on, Andy man. <laughs> he always used to call me Andy man. And uh, it was, he was always like, rage on, Andy man. How much? And he was a lot of fun. How much time did you have? to spend with these guys outside the studio? <laughs> well, I, I, 
I was usually the person who would pick them up from the house on Boardman and bring them to the studio. Uh, you know, I took them to the first time they went to Lakeshore Record Exchange. I took them there. But the best part of spending time with these guys uh, was um, one time Johnny Z was in town and it was a Wednesday night. And, you know, we kind of were wrapping up early because these guys slept in, you know, because we would drink all night. And um, that's where the whole nickname Alcoholica came from, by yeah. the way. Oh, sure. And sure. and, and um, so we, um, Johnny's like, you know, what, what's there to do? And I said, oh, I said, on Wednesday nights, I usually go to East Rochester because it's 25 cent beer night. Where, Peaches? So John, uh, at, no, at, uh, I think it was called Miller's. It was right on Commercial Street on the main drag there. The main drag, um, I live in East Rochester, so the main drag of uh, East Rochester used to go to Miller's on Wednesday night for quarter drafts. Yeah, and I forgot, the, it, it turned into another restaurant, but when you walked in, you could go up, the bar was right there, but then you could go up or you could go down. And so Johnny Z said, here's a hundred bucks. He gave me a hundred dollar bill. He goes, go have some fun. We piled into my Chevy Impala. And we went to Miller's and a few of my buddies from Penfield were there. And I gave the bartender the hundred and I said, don't stop. And we, we, we had a couple of beers. Wow. That's awesome, man. That is awesome. So here, no, you know, what's awesome, John, is that I drove home, got them back home safely. <laughs> you know, I was thinking that I was, I didn't want to show our age, but that was back when, uh, you know, the cop made sure you got, you got home. Yeah. So, yeah. so you spent a lot of time with the guys. Um, they, like, like you said, a lot of this recording, a lot of the recording happened between what six p.m. to midnight, or did they go even later? Well, no, they would usually sleep in late. So, you know, I doubt there were too many times they got there before noon. So most of it happened, you know, between noon and midnight. Night, you know, it was just a couple of times. Um, when I was working, uh, you know, the studio, the studio atmosphere was very, it was kind of like a revolving door. You know, there was people coming in and out all the time, you know? Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't with them all a hundred percent of the time. Well, part of what we're doing here is we're celebrating Cliff Burton as 34 years ago, this past weekend, he passed away. Were there any other situations that you can recall with Cliff that you had a, some kind of kinship, a bonding? You mentioned that he called you Andy, man. Can you share any other stories? No, you know, not, not anything specific. It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, obviously, but um, he was just a very, very uh, upbeat, uh, genuine, um, warming, open uh, guy, um, you know, Lars and James, uh, you know, James was kind of a, a tougher personality, uh, you know, and he taller, bigger guy, right. Mm -hmm. You know, and Lars has a, a really decent ego and, and Lars likes to get what he, and those guys would butt heads and Cliff would be like, all right, you know, that's it. Like, you know, and he'd be sometimes be more of a mediator when Kurt would just sit off to the side and just, you know, roll his eye. But, you know, Cliff was amazing. Um, and um, he just, when he walked into a room, uh, you know, the energy changed and it was always positive. It was always up, 
and um, it it bothered me a lot, you know, after that when he passed away in that bus crash. It just really hit me hard. It, I tell you, there's two deaths in music that really hit me hard, and uh, Cliff's was one of them. The other one was when Neil Peart died, uh, the drummer for uh, Rush. Yeah, that's what. That's... And um, you know, those are two days I I cried because uh, they were people that I really admired, and um, you know, they were good good folk. But uh, yeah, Cliff was a great guy. How much interaction did you have socially with Lars? Um, you know, we talked a few times. I, I played him some of the stuff that um, I had created at uh, in college. I went to Miami of Ohio, and I went through their electronic music program. And you and I were talking earlier about uh, razor blade tape mm-hmm. back in the day when we were using. And so one of the um, one of the things that I played for um, Lars was um, I took uh, some uh, sounds of uh, uh, babies crying and frogs peeping in a swamp, and I cut that up and I turned it into uh, a big bell ringing. You know exactly like the beginning of "For Whom the Bell Tolls," and he's like, he goes, he goes, that's that's kind of cool. And I said, well, check this out. I said, and so I did this thing and it sounded like helicopters coming in during the war, kind of like the beginning of one. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we've had these conversations where I said, you know, I've always thought that, um, you know, songs tell a story, but that you need, sometimes you need this other aspect with these, not sound effects. I said, cause that's cheesy, but I've always liked it when we had these different things. And I used to play that stuff for him and say, you know, this is what I did here. This is what I did there. So my conversations with Lars were always like a little bit more uh, technical. Or, you know, or imagery. Cliff, yeah, imagery. You know, um, James wasn't, you know, James, you know, didn't, he wasn't much of a, a talker unless, you know, it had something to do directly with him. And, you know, Kirk was shy. But, you know, when he got to sit and talk to him by himself, you know, especially those times I spent with him in the isolation booth, you know, he's just a really good guy. And, uh, you know, as Cliff, so. You mentioned from the, you mentioned from the beginning that you said to Paul Curcio and Chris that, hey, these guys, they have it and they're going to be huge. Two part question. One even though you're a young metalhead at the time, what led you to have that belief? And when through all this did Curcio and Chris, did they ever say to you, you know, you may be onto something here and, or these guys, even though they're not metalheads or metal fans, the brass understood that these guys were a cut above. I don't think I ever got any, you know, Paul wasn't going to ever admit to anybody, you know, anything. <laughs> and Chris hated it all. Right. Um, I just told him, I said, look at, I said, you know, um, I remember hearing a demo tape for, uh, uh, from Def Leppard, you know, when they were uh, recording their first album. And I said, these guys are going to be huge. I love this stuff. It's not really heavy, but that first, that first Def metal, the Def Leppard uh, album was really hard. It was good. You know, it hadn't been overproduced by Mutt Lang yet and all that stuff, right? On through the but night. I heard Metallica. Yeah. yeah. And um, so I, 
when I heard uh, the Metallica stuff, I, you know, I always, um, and I always used to tell people like, it, you have to be able to feel the testosterone down where it counts. If, you know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. you got to feel it. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, loved Motorhead and, you know, I was always a metalhead. And when I heard this, I was like, these guys, this is just like, I have not heard this before. You know, so many people had thrown them into the category of like, you know, punk and all this other stuff. I said, no, 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 no. This is like, this is good. This is fast, but it's, it's, it's good. And I don't, I don't, I don't have any real definition of to why I thought that it was just like this thing's um, they strike you and you go, this is going to be good or this is not going to be good. So the first time you ever heard Metallica was when you started the, started the album. You Did you hear, yep. you, you didn't hear anything from the No Life to Leather demo? Nope. nope, I had never heard that demo. And that was the one that they kept making, you know, cassette copies of and, you know, just handing it out, you know, on the West Coast and stuff to gain some popularity but i had not heard any of that i heard them when they got into the studio and i just that was I, that was my that was my jam you know there were other bands that came to the studio like uh, you know the rods mm-hmm. um and the rods the rods were good but the rods it just wasn't like that metal uh you know um manowar was another band that came to the studio i don't know if you ever heard of manowar they were oh yeah 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 joey DeMeo, ross the boss uh, Eric, Eric <laughs> Adams. Yeah. The, yeah. the, uh, nice. Yeah. 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 No, I, you know, I grew up on hail to England and battle hymns and, you know, I've been a metalhead since fourth grade jamming kiss alive one. Um, there you go. So who else in Rochester? I'm, I'm curious who, what other bands I heard anthrax made it up here for some pre-production for spreading. The yep. Diseases they came in right after Metallica. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, they were with, um, Megaforce and yep. Johnny yep. Z. And when uh, Metallica left town, uh, anthrax came in and, you know, I remember talking to Scott Ian and the other guys and they did some pre-production stuff because they had been practicing down in New York, you know, with Metallica in the warehouse, uh, prior to Metallica coming up here and recording. Well, the, the, um, the, the story behind that, I uh, listened to the Johnny Z book, uh, the new book that came out last year. When he brought Metallica in to the West East Coast, the band stayed with him for about a week and a half. And finally, they had to go. He loved the guys, but they, they just had to go because they drank everything. They ate everything. They, the, the, uh, they're, they're up the opposite hours that his family was. So he moved them into Anthrax's warehouse re, uh, rehearsal space. And yep. they lived there. But the thing was, Anthrax lived in New York, so they went home at night. And the, so you've probably heard the story, too. But that's that's yeah. the connection they have. And, yeah, they're blood brothers. It's um, unfortunately, mm-hmm. it's I say this with all due respect. It's only fitting that Anthrax was with them when they were touring the fall of 86, when the tragic accident happened with Cliff, you know? Yeah. Where were they you? They were friends. Yeah. Yeah. Where were you when that happened? When you, when you found out? I was at my, the very first house I ever owned was between Blossom and Humboldt. 
um, in the city. Mm-hmm. And uh, I lived by myself. And uh, I remember being home and, and finding out. And like, because I bought that house in 84, the year after Metallica recorded Kill 'em All. And um, yeah, just one of those things. Like, you're, that's funny you asked me that because I'm thinking back now. I was probably in the kitchen doing something and had something going on, had the radio on, and it must have come on the radio. I, um, fall of 1986, I was going to school and living in Metro Toronto. Actually, the name of my apartment building was the Maples, and it was on the same building as Maple Leaf Gardens. And I was going to Trevis Institute of Recording Arts, and, you know, I was doing what I was doing, and across the street was a record store called Rock and Roll Heaven. And we used, you know, the skinheads would be in there, metal dudes. It was, you know, a, a, a bowl of everyone would go there. And I remember walking in there, and that's how I found out. The guy, uh, you know, the owner, whoever said, did you know, did you hear? And he told me, and me and Cheech, my, my roommate and my buddy that I did the metal show with, and we just stopped because – Six months earlier, we interviewed the band. We drove Kirk to the House of Guitars and Nikki's News. After the interview, James and Cliff were doing a in-store at the house. We met up there. You know, we met everyone. They gave us laminates, hooked up after the show. I mean, that was my experience, my one day with Metallica and... You know, I have my experience with them, but I've been a fan since Kill 'Em All. Buddy of mine, his dad had a store right near the studio when they're recording Kill 'Em All, and he met them. And you know, we were into metal, and we didn't know who they were. And they said, "Wait, you know, wait six months, and the album will be." Actually, it wasn't six months; it was like two, three months later. Kill 'Em All came out. We all got it because we were the generation of. Kill 'em all, Slayer, Anthrax. That was us. And yep. so, so, wow, Andrew, that's fantastic. It's, um, did you ever keep in touch or ever run into them again? Or that was it? No, I, I, you know, they got big fast. And then, um, you know, once, um, I tried to get a hold of them, um, when they were inducted into the Hall of Fame, but, uh, couldn't get past. Uh, the management company down in New York. But, you know, I had my, my moments, I had my times. Um, I, you know, I've got uh, a ton of pictures of us and um, it was all good times. And uh, still wish I had that Chevy Impala that we used to listen to the tunes in, in after we finished recording. Now but, you, um, you mentioned earlier tapes. Did you, do you have any tapes? Um, any early demos? The only tapes, the only tapes, well, a lot, you know, you couldn't, really you couldn't take stuff out of the studio right I yeah mean, yeah you know because but uh um the only tapes i have were me and kurt sitting in the isolation booth and talking about like different things about the solos that he was trying to put together for various songs um we did that i think two or three times um you know because kurt had you know it was great kurt shows up uh, and he's got this little thing called an apple crate amp i'm sure you've seen him back in the day these little crate amps it was called the apple crate <laughs> i do remember and, uh, them that's why i'm laughing because i haven't thought about it in 30 years yeah and 
that's what he brought. And he just used to, you know, sit there and just practice and practice and practice and practice and practice. And, you know, um, it was, it was funny because these, these guys, you know, they, when they were living in the house on Boardman, they'd go out and they'd walk around and do stuff. And there was nothing to do compared to what they were doing on the West coast of New York city. Right. And, and they, and I remember one time James said to him, he goes, he's like, Andy, he goes, you know, like he goes, the only kind of people that live here are ugly ones. What's up with that? And I was like, have you guys looked in the mirror? And we all laughed. You know, yeah. um, it was like, it was just funny, but there was really nothing for them to do. And that's why it, the, the sessions lasted. So it was such a short thing. You know, it was, it was 17 days start to finish. And in modern times, you know, during that time, the interesting thing that during that time that Metallica took 17 days to record Kill 'Em All, uh, Fleetwood Mac was spending a million dollars just on the drum sounds for Tusk. And, and because Mick Fleetwood is a freak when it comes to details. And they spent 12 months and a million dollars in the studio just on the drum sounds for the album. And Metallica was in and out in 17 days. And then it was what, June, July, it was 90 days later the album had been pressed and was released and out for the, the public to enjoy. It was a very, very fast thing, but that worked. They had to concentrate when they came to Rochester. They, they played every day. They took a day off, I think once, but it was every afternoon and night, every afternoon and night to did get you, it done. Did you uh, go to the riverboat show when they came in August with Raven? No, nope. Why not? Um, you know, it, uh, just I, my life took a huge turn after I didn't get paid, um, for all of that work, I left the studio and I had to get, I took a job and I started making money and I started buying and rehabbing real estate. And then I, I met my wife and life just took a, a crazy turn and I never really uh, picked up anything in the audio engineering uh, field again, because, um, one, I think that I'd probably be dead if I had stayed in the industry uh, with more of an addictive personality that I have, to be blunt and honest. Mm -hmm. And uh, number two, I had to follow the money. Uh, my dad had died, and my mom needed somebody to support her, and I, I couldn't afford to take any chances, so I had to follow the money and just never really look back. Did you sour any bit on Metallica because you didn't get paid? No, no. Nope. Not at all. I mean, everybody goes, oh, my God, you never got credit for the intro on Anesthesia Pulling Teeth. You know, you never got any album credits for the, 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 the chorus and Seek and Destroy. And I'm like, first of all, I'm not that guy. I, I like I don't need that. Um, I've never I just John, this is the first time I ever talked about this stuff with anybody publicly because um, I, I lived that experience. I had those experiences with those guys that I shared with you and that's worth everything. Nobody can ever take that away from me. I agree. That's exactly what I was thinking when I asked the question. Yeah, sure. You could have gotten paid, but that would have been nice. But if you didn't have, there's one person on this earth that could say, that's me that says bass solo take one. You know, Andrew, this uh, gives me a chance. I'm going to invite you to do a segment we call on, Metal Mayhem ROC, Mount Rushmore of Metal. 
Many have tried, most have failed, only a few survived. This is the Mount Rushmore of Metal. This is a little segment we have fun with where we ask our guests, give us their top four. If you can, can you give us your top four Metallica moments that you had while you were engineering the 1983 Kill 'Em All debut album? Number one, uh, doing the intro to Anesthesia Pulling Teeth. Uh, number two, uh, sitting with Lars with his drums in the bathroom of the second story of the Rochester club because it was haunted. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Number three, uh, sitting in the guitar isolation booth with Kurt Hammett and talking out different guitar solos for some songs on kill them all. And um, number four, uh, taking him to East Rochester on a Wednesday night for 25 cent beers. <laughs> that's just fantastic, dude. That's uh, that, that's excellent. You know, it compensates the fact that you didn't get paid for it, but you know, you got yourself a lifetime of stories and experience. Now you're sharing uh, some other abil- uh, other stories while you're at the Rochester Plaza. Who else did you meet there? Any other rock and roll confessions? Any cool? I think that's just amazing. Getty Lee invited you in. What what era was that of Getty? Of Rush, what was that like? Presto, that era. Yeah, yep, yep. It was in that. It was what eighty. Let me think here. Uh it had to be eighty four. It had to be eighty four. So yeah, um, I met. I had a really good conversation with a gentleman by the name of Mike Cotton. Mike Cotton played keyboards for the Tubes. Uh, you remember the Tubes, right? Oh yeah. The, um... Yeah, I remember the MTV White punks video. on dope. Yep. I remember the tubes um, where they're breaking the TV in the video. Yep, yep. And the, then the, the lead singer had this alter ego called Quay Lude. <laughs> he had like 12-inch heels. It was hysterical. Anyways, um, those guys, I, I met them. You know, I, I had dinner with Getty Lee one time. Um uh, I had a great conversation with Mick Mars from uh, Motley Crue. Way, he's a huge wine connoisseur uh, and ordered like one of the most expensive bottles of wine that I've ever delivered to a room service person. So he was talking about wine and all this stuff. And I just remember how like, like how calm and sedate this guy was, you know, but here was this persona on stage and he didn't really move around like, cause you know, his back was so bad. Yeah. But, yeah. He was the, you know, crew was, you know, they were, they owned it, you know, for a long time. And, and, but calm as calm could be these guys. You know, um, here's a fun fact. Uh, last year we had the band last in line on the show and we asked Vivian Campbell to share one of his rock and roll confessions. And he shared when he was in Rochester, when white, when he was playing guitar for white snake and white snake was opening up for Motley Crue. This had to be, I think, 1987, the Girls, Girls, Girls tour, the White Snake, White Snake album, when both bands were, you know, bigger than big. He said that Nikki Six and Tommy Lee took him out for his birthday in Rochester because it was his birthday that night. They got him so hammered that the next day, that was the most drunk he's ever been. He claims 
in his life. It was, you know, that crazy. But he shared it yeah. with us because it was right here in Rochester, and it was at the Rochester Plaza. And who knows? You may have been five feet from him. It's funny how the six degrees of metal mayhem affects everyone. Yeah, it is funny, isn't it? Well, Andrew, I want to thank you for uh, stopping in today and sharing these lifelong experiences that you have with the Metallica guys for Kill 'Em All. Is there anything else you want to share with us before we get going? No, I, I John, I, I appreciate you having me. Um, no, I, uh, I think I, I, I think I've emptied my head uh, of its limited capacity uh, of what I can remember. Um, I'll have to go. Now you got me curious. I have to dig through some. Uh, some boxes and see if I can find some of those uh, tapes of Kurt from the isolation booth. And I'm going to look at some more pictures tonight and see if I can uh, maybe jog my memory. Like I said, it was a long time ago and I'm getting older every day. You, you, you know what you had here out of respect for both Paul and, and Johnny? What's that? Is you had two guys that uh, were, they were pushing the envelope, you know, they didn't have the money to do the things they wanted to do and they were trying to get it done. Yeah. Yeah. And they were sitting there and they were like, for instance, I'll give you an example. Um, before I got involved in recording, when I to make money for school, I was gotten involved in modeling. And I had a friend who was a photographer over in village gate. It's now called village gate over on North Goodman. Yeah. Uh, gear, the guy's name was Gary Hurd, and he was a phenomenal photographer especially black and white and Curcio says to me do you know any photographers because we need some album artwork for this album with these Metallica kids and so yeah my buddy Gary so I remember you know calling up Gary I said hey you know and so you know Gary's like yeah he goes do you know this Curcio guy I said yeah you know and Gary's like fine I'll invoice him so I remember taking a Metallica up to Gary's studio and that's where that awesome raw black and white uh photo came from the back of the album also gary did the anvil on the front with the blood uh-huh. that's all gary gary did all of that really because he invoiced paul and never got paid <laughs> yeah well see, the, so see this has been very helpful for me because you filled in a lot of gaps for stuff that i've always wanted to know what, and uh is there anything else because maybe i know more than you even can imagine <laughs> Maybe I don't know. I mean, well, I just I didn't I didn't even think about talking about the artwork on the album until I I just thought of it. That Gary did the front cover with the blood, and that you know that all came about um, at the at the studio with um, those guys just talking to Gary about what they wanted to do. So uh, and and Gary came up with some ideas, and he goes, "Well, this is what we can do. We can get some you know fake blood, and we'll do this, and I'll get it'll be like a real kind of." you know, uh, darkish, uh, you know, kind of tone to it. And then I want to do black and white, a, a black and white portrait of you guys and put it on the back. And this was after uh, Megaforce um, vetoed the original metal up your ass idea of the knife coming yeah. through co- knife coming through the toilet. Yep. Um, that That was shot down pretty early. Do you know how they came about it being called Kill 'Em All? Not exactly. Um, James was the lyricist, and so that stuff. I'll, I'll bet you. I'll, I'll bet you a buck <laughs> that 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 idea came from him. 
I don't know for certain, but I'll, I'll bet you because James, again, it was in his lyrics. He changed things. He wanted things to say a certain thing. And um, I'll, I'll, I, I've never heard in any verse who actually out of those guys are going to take credit for the naming of that album. Cliff. But it, I'll bet you it was James. Cliff. 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 Uh, when, huh? when he when he found out that, uh, you know, the brass at the record company said no go, he's like, ah, kill them all. I did not know that. Yeah. So that's why they had that, that there was that garage, not a garage, but sort of an underground album called Cliff em All. Yeah, well, Cliff em All was the uh, VHS that came out after Cliff died. Yep. I'm not sure if it was... I think it was a take on kill them all, but it wasn't called cliff them all because allegedly cliff came up with the title cliff them all or kill them. All. Uh, but I've heard that on many occasions that cliff them all or kill them all came from cliff. And when they found, like I said, when they found out the brass vetoed metal up your ass in cliff fashion said, ah, kill them all. <laughs> and, and Lars or who the powers that be and it just came about so you know so here's another little angle that the little metal town that could you know Rochester used to be called Soccer Town USA but we're yeah. uh, up here at Metal Mayhem ROC we're starting a movement to rename it Metal Town USA because the, I think so there's so much history here you know here's a like, si- here's a side note not to interrupt you, yeah. but in 1979, Van Halen came on their Van Halen 2 tour, and they shot three live videos that are on YouTube for Dance the Night Away um, and two other tracks from Van Halen 2. And it's right here in Rochester. And if you go on YouTube and uh, and search hmm. it, you the video starts where... The band pulls up to the back of the war memorial. They get out of the limo. All four guys walk in. They're backstage in the you know the little green room. They're cracking beers, and then you know they uh, and then they go on stage. And you know they were shot right here. Uh, bands have Judas Priest as recently as I think it was uh, 2012 or 2013 was here for a week rehearsing before the start of their tour. You know it's just. There's just just the connection. It's the, the this oh, town, yeah. the the town, and we're really proud of what's been going on, and it's great. And it's you know it's people like you that have at the right place at the right time. But you took you know, Andrew, you took a you took advantage of the situation. You uh, had an you had an opportunity, and you you know you wanted to get into engineering. You walked in there and you made it happen. Some call some call it lucky because it was Metallica, but hey, the good ones sometimes luck is all you need. Yeah, you know the old the old saying: the harder you work, the luckier you get. And I just, I had never had anything handed to me in my life. I, I you know my parents didn't have any money. Anything I ever wanted, I had to go out there and get it. And I you know carried that on throughout my life. And uh, you know in retrospect, I guess I I'm glad I had it hard early on because you know it teaches you the fight for stuff. So, and are you yeah. still uh, up to date on metal? You get into some new stuff or are you just like, like what you like and you're just enjoying your fifties. <laughs> I'm, I'm enjoying my fifties for a couple more months, John. <laughs> um, 
uh, you know, I like what I like. I haven't really gotten into uh, anything. The only new music that I've listened to uh, recently was a a band that started off as a Rush tribute band and now has gone out on their own. And the musicality is amazing. They're called Why Why Not. Wow. We'll take off on the Y Y Z. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, check them out. It's Y Y Not N O T. It's all one word, and uh, they're amazing. But you know, metal. Uh, when I'm cycling. I I'm going to throw on some Metallica and just let it, you know, just let it play. And I haven't really spent a lot of time uh, looking for new stuff. Uh, but it's funny. Some of the old stuff that crops up, like um, I had a friend from high school and he had a cousin and his cousin's name. And I, I, I I'll, I'll be really phenomenally interested if you know who this is. The guy's name is Mike Marconi. And he was Alice Cooper's guitar player for a while. And he left Cooper and he formed a band called Billion Dollar Babies. Hmm. Do you remember them? No, no, but. From Rochester. And you would think like, you know, you're a businessman. So you leave Alice Cooper and then you form a band called Billion Dollar Babies. But Cooper being the guy that he was, and because Marconi, they left on such good terms, he's like, yeah, he goes, you can use that. It's fine. Good luck. <laughs> <And, laughs> kind of cool, right? Yeah, no, that's totally cool. What's the uh, type of music? Is it a Cooper cover or is it? Oh, no, it was like they were, it was all original stuff. It was like that 70s hard yeah, rock. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's awesome. So, all right. Well, uh, Andrew... Andrew Robleski, engineer. You did it. Yeah, I did it. He's the he was part of the crew that recorded Kill 'Em All, Metallica back in the early '80s. I want to thank you again for joining us and stay in touch. And best of luck to you, bud. All right, John. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for uh, letting me uh, letting you pick my brain. You got it, bud. Metal for Life. Thanks for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our websites at MetalMayhemROC.com and MetalForever.com for information on upcoming concerts, podcasts, archives, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. Catch us next time on WLFE-DV Radio. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.